What up, everyone? This is Jaron Barnes with the Land Maverick Podcast. In today's episode, we have the honor and privilege of interviewing Justin Pichet. He is somebody who's not super well-known, but is absolutely crushing it in the land space. We're probably going to have him on for a second interview because there's a lot for us to dive into. He does a lot of subdivides, a lot of improvements, really cool guy, super inspirational, was a military guy, turned land investor. You guys are in for a treat. The Land, land Maverick, Maverick Podcast. Podcast. Everything, Everything you need to know to crush it in land investing. So with that, Justin, welcome to the show. All right. Well, let me introduce Justin because I, I feel like I know you pretty well, actually. Justin, if you were to create a ratio of high performance versus low visibility, Justin actually might have the highest ratio I know of. So he probably wouldn't say this, but I believe he's going to net over seven figures this year. I mean, net, not gross. And nobody knows who he is. So hopefully this is your debut into the world. And maybe you can start getting some cold texts from people who want free coaching, like I've gotten recently. But Justin, I'm glad you're here. Thank you for taking the time. And I'm excited for you to meet Jaron. Yeah. I'm excited to meet Jaron. Yeah, obviously, as we talked a little bit earlier, you know, Jaron's been in the space for quite some time. I think we've all listened to a few RE Tipster podcasts in the past and maybe some Land Maverick podcasts as well. But yeah, this is awesome. I love talking land. So being able to talk land with two land investors and have like it be a very normal kind of conversation and not feel like some big production thing is, is fun. This is fun. Tell us how you went from being in charge of nuclear submarines to doing seven-figure subdivide deals. How does that transition happen? And I want to hear some cool stories along the way. Yeah. So just like for the listeners and and for Jaron, some background, was a chemical engineer by degree. I went to LSU, go Tigers. And while I was in college, I joined a program called NUPOC, which I don't remember what the acronym stands for, but essentially is a nuclear officer something, something, something. But you join this program and you're basically in the pipeline to become either a submarine officer or a nuclear officer on an aircraft carrier. Those are the kind of the two main paths. And so, you know, I was 20 years old, chose submarines, sounded awesome. And when I finished college, I commissioned as an officer in the United States Navy and then went through a few years of training and then was stationed on uh, the ballistic missile submarine SSBN 741, the USS Maine out of Bangor, Washington. And uh, I was stationed there for, I guess, three and a half years, went on several deployments, a shipyard period. And honestly, I really liked it. You know, there's a lot of guys I think that join the military and they think they they have maybe not great experiences. They're ready to get out and then join the civilian world. And it was hard, but I really liked it. Like, I think I had a great crew, great commanding officers, just worked with exceptional people. And so... And the challenge was I was married, which is an amazing thing. And I'd much prefer you know staying married than staying in the Navy, which is part of the reason why I left. But when you're in a marriage, obviously, it's a partnership. You got to figure out the best thing for your family moving forward. And for us, it was starting a family and moving close to our family in Houston. And so in 2017, my first kind of commitment was up. And instead of you know doing a, a shore tour, which is what a lot of Navy folks will do, kind of an easier job you have to commit to, to another 
another sea tour in order to actually get the good ones. We decided to separate from the Navy, move to Houston and get a job here. And so that was 2017. And when I moved here, we bought our home, what I'm standing in right now. And I started applying to like every freaking job you could think of. Like I had interviews with like Deloitte for consulting and some boutique consulting firms. I had interviews with a bunch of energy and oil companies, like service providers, the typical kind of Houston jobs. And I ended up getting a job at ExxonMobil in the chemical company, which was kind of like a fitting job for somebody who was a chemical engineer and then was in the military and then got out. And now, you know, what do you do? Like with a chemical engineering degree, like work for a chemical company, right? Logical. And so it was great. It was great. I, I did that for five years, but my son or my daughter was born in 2019 and COVID hit, right? In 2020, she was just a, six months old and we started working from home and I got to experience like being there for breakfast and like being with my daughter when she got off from daycare or whatever, it, just being there so much. It was incredible. It was incredible. And, you know, we started going back to the office, not a huge deal. I was fortunate enough to be, I was a supervisor at a plant at that time, a chemical manufacturing plant. And so my, my boss wasn't actually at my plant and I was able to establish kind of the policy for my team, work from home or go in. And so we had a pretty generous, you know, work from home policy. And so I was able to continue that. And then in uh, 2021, my wife got pregnant with our son, our second child, and that's kind of when I saw, started to see like the writing on the wall. Because at that same time, we were about to go back into the office. I knew I was going to be getting a new job soon. That was going to have me leaving earlier. And then my wife got a new job, a new like role at her company. She works for Chevron that was going to require more travel. And we, we basically got to a point where we, you know, somewhere around mid 2021, we realized we were going to have to hire somebody to wake up our kids get them breakfast and bring them to school and daycare, probably pick them up any after school activities because we were going to be gone from, you know, six 30 to basically like five 30 every day in order to meet our job obligations. And that was untenable. So in, during that period of time, I had started dabbling in real estate. I bought a couple single family homes. I wholesaled a couple homes, you know, sent out direct mail, had a little bit of success, made a little bit of money, but I wasn't really like, I wasn't super focused on it. I wasn't, it wasn't exceptional at it. You know, I just blasted things out and got deals done and made a little bit of money, you know, kind of the broad strokes, just shotgun approach, but it worked. It worked. And at that same time, I had a friend, his name's Kyle Bryant, who I think drew, I don't know if you guys both know Kyle, maybe drew, you know, Kyle, smart guy, buddy of mine. He had started land investing, I think back in 2019, around the same time I started buying single family homes and you know, he was doing great. He had some great deals. He brought one to me, asked me to fund it. It was just like a, I think it was like $16,000 and he doubled my money in like a couple months and he made a huge profit. I was like, what? Like, and we start, we would talk metrics. I'm like, Hey, how many, how many leads are you getting per like, you know, 5,000 mailers? It's like, Oh, I get like three, three, four, like solid leads deals, you know, back then for that many mailers. And I'm like, Shh dang it, I'm, I'm sending out like 12,000 and I have one deal to show for it on a wholesale and I had to buy it for like 100K just to make 15 grand. Like, and you're making 30 grand on the deal that you got from like a fraction of the, Anyway, my eyes were open. So I basically just asked him, hey man, will you be my coach? Like, what do I need to do to like pivot, you know, pivot the business to this? 
And at the time, he was working with Clint Turner in Learn.Land. I don't know if you guys, I'm sure you guys have kind of heard of We Clint. just interviewed him and, uh, two hours ago, by the way. Yeah, we did. Fantastic. Yeah, Clint's, I mean, Clint has a great, like, learning program, great, great kind of mastermind. But anyway, I, I, I decided, all right, I'll take some of the funds from the most recent wholesale fee where I made 30 grand and pay for coaching and courses and go, like, all in. That was, like, September of 2021 when I, like, really, like, full force launched essentially another job. I was still working at Exxon at the time, but... But basically, I was working half in Exxon, half in this business um, at that time. It also coincided with when my son was born. So it was a hectic time in my life, let's just say. How did you get into the land business? Like, So you went from doing some wholesale stuff, but did you join a particular course? Like, Did you join Learn.Land or did you just like YouTube University? What was your thing? Yeah. So I mean, like I had, I had been consuming outrageous amounts of bigger pockets and all, you know, all like the big real estate podcasts. But with land, I, I literally, like my buddy Kyle was having so much success. I, I, I just asked him, hey man, what's the best way to get into this like full force? And he, I mean, he recommended coaching slash the co- learn land course. And that I literally paid for coaching and learn land and just followed the steps to, to build a business and have iterated it, you know, innumerable times since then, like changed things, what works for me, what, what doesn't. But yeah, that's how I started. I, I took Clint's courses, which he, I think he gives out for free now on YouTube and built a business that way. And then used, you know, the expertise of coaches to make sure I wasn't screwing things up royally, learn from other people's mistakes. I love it. If Land Maverick Society did not exist, I tell people all the time, I would be like team learn.land. Obviously I'm a little biased with, you know, Land Maverick Society, but like they are a phenomenal organization and I give two thumbs up for anybody who wants to even compare because there's pros and cons to, you know, every community that's out there. But if Land Maverick Society wasn't a thing, I would be telling everybody and their mama, go go to Learn.Land. I think a lot of it too is because I know Ajay really well and Ajay is such a big part of the team there. But yeah, I mean, they actually get results for their clients. I mean, it's it's pretty phenomenal. And, you know, there are a handful of education platforms and stuff that do, but there are a lot that don't. <laughs> and they're, they're one of the, the main ones that really get some killer results for people. So I'm a big fan. Did you start flipping or did you first dive deep into subdivides? What's kind of your niche or kind of go-to deal strategy? Yeah. So I started flipping, right? Just kind of like everybody else does. I started with direct mail. I picked a state, North Carolina, and I just mailed like the whole state essentially. I was filtering five acres to like a thousand acres and just parsing down the data, doing about 10,000 piece mailers every couple of weeks and just trying to make it to make it work. Everything was a flip. At that point I had a hammer and everything was a nail and that was my only strategy. Just flip, 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 send a drone pilot out, get the photos and videos, pre-market, close on it, market until I sold it, flip, done, move on to the next one or keep the funds flowing in the pipeline. Yeah, that was it. I didn't do anything else. But the thing that's different about you, Justin, is you only started two years ago. So your timeline, what most people progress over five to 10 years, you've done in two years. That's a fact. There's no question about it. Justin's like, well, thanks for making me feel awkward, Drew. Yes, I am amazing. I'm the greatest that ever was. (laughs) I think one of the key things in this business, right, is like one of the things I think allowed me to be relatively successful relatively quickly is that I already had realized there was proof of concept. Like people were doing this, like it, it was possible. I believe from the beginning, I knew from the beginning. I mean, it was, 
it was sales. It was sales, marketing. Like I'm good at sales. I love talking. I love working mutually beneficial deals. I saw the value in the service. It didn't feel like this grimy thing where sometimes wholesaling can kind of feel like, especially because, you know, I, it wasn't necessarily my strategy to flip contracts. I've actually never flipped a contract. I've brought cash for every single closing I've ever, for every property I've ever sold. Not to like say that separates, because I think wholesaling is a fantastic way for folks to get started. And just another strategy, if you can't necessarily make the margins on the risk of actually buying the asset yourself, but you can make a little bit on the, the flipping of the contract. I still think it's fantastic. It's just not how I started. Well, and to your point though, one of the benefits, at least in my opinion, when it comes to land versus houses, is that people aren't as emotionally attached to the property. It's more like a novelty or like having a boat. You know, when they have a second piece of land that they're not really using, they're not talking about the house that they inherited from their grandmother that they live in that's literally the roof over their head. It's like a they're not attached to it as much. So you don't feel as bad. It's much more clean when we talk about buying at 50 cents on the dollar or less, because it's like, you're not even using the property. It's not the roof over their head. You're hundred percent right. I mean, that was the big kind of thing that clicked in my mind when I started doing it was, wow, these negotiations are so much easier. I'm not hearing stories about how like grandma passed this down to me and like, what are you going to, are you going to take care of it? And it was like, oh, like my grandpa owned like a thousand acres and then my aunts and uncles all got 50 and then I got this 20 acre piece. I've never been there. I don't care about it. What do you give me? Like it's much easier to talk through those things. Like, oh, I can give you this much. Sounds good. Let's go. Okay. So did we finish your timeline? I'm a person that takes action. I think it's something I would say. And so when I say I went all in, I literally, you know, I woke up, got the baby, got my daughter off to take care of whatever needed to happen early in the morning. And then from like 7.30 to 4.30, I was working at ExxonMobil, either going to the plant, managing my team, dealing with whatever crazy things came up that day. And then I come home, have dinner, and then put the kids down. And from like 7 to like 1 a.m. every day for about six months, I worked on this business, right? Building out websites, comping deals, getting all my data, getting all my marketing stuff built, and just immediately went all in. And I think that's the grit. Like, I think everyone needs to go through that. Because I did something similar. I, Jaron did that for like 10 years or something. And I think there needs to be the very difficult season where you almost quit multiple times and you wonder if it's worth it. I think that's the true test of an entrepreneur, right? It's a hazing process. And I love hearing that Justin Sleva, he got laid off, right? And so he was forced into that. I really love hearing it because how many people have we interviewed, Jaron? 30, maybe? We're on 32. This is episode 32. And it's the same story every time. You need to work your ass off and get kicked in the nuts before you start to see the big money. And if you see the big money too early, you could get really hurt. Okay, so 32 episodes of the same exact story, just slightly different flavors. And I love it. There's a lot of people in this, maybe not necessarily this space, but just in the online, like I would put this as in a similar category to like, you know, household selling, flipping, online e-commerce. We're all competing kind of for the same markets. At least the education market is competing for the same, same markets. And I think what a lot of people do, what a lot of course pushers or masterminds, whatever do is they build their niche as this get rich quick scheme or this, hey, you can do this on the side and make a ton of money. And I think it's uniquely true in land that you can do this on the side and make a lot of money, but that does not mean 
it's a get rich quick scheme or that it's not going to take an extraordinary amount of work to separate yourself from maybe the rest of the folks in your market. It's a deal cycle. I mean, even in a wholesale situation, a deal cycle, like it's typically not less than three months. I mean, a deal cycle when you're buying and developing nine months, a year, I mean, you may, you may spend money in January and not see a penny of profit until December. Like it's just how it happens. So when you're building these, like what I used to tell people who would be like, well, you know, you haven't made money yet. What are you doing? Like when I was first starting out, Hey, you know what? I feel like what I'm doing right now is I'm digging a hole. I'm digging a hole. And at the bottom of that hole is a freaking rocket ship. And as soon as I get to it, I can get on it and I'm going to be way higher than I was before I started digging, but I have to dig. Like it's just, you've got to dig. And you can't be afraid of the hustle. There's no getting around it. Unless you're like a funder, like that is one niche where it does seem you can get into pretty quickly and scale pretty aggressively. But even with that, there's a bunch of stuff that you got to do. A lot of, you know, analyzing deals, vetting, you know, your operators, there's no getting around it. You got to roll up your sleeves and get dirty. I mean, it is a viable business and there's no way around it. And I think it's really good that you say that because, and there's a lot of even hype out there. There's a lot of podcasts and other, you know, platforms in the space that kind of sell it as though it's like, a, oh, it's super easy. You just do this, that, and the other and you get deals. And it's like, well, maybe back in the wild, wild west days, but not now. Like it's a grind and you got to fight for it. But it is simple. It's not easy, but it is simple, right? You just follow, follow the roadmap. Yeah. So how did you make that pivot from straight flips to more value add stuff? I know you had some good mentors, Matt Walt and, and Kyle Bryant. Actually, when I met you, Drew, which was at the Learn Land conference or live event back uh, last year, the end of, about this time, actually, last year, you know, Justin Sleva, who you guys, I think I've interviewed, got up and just was talking about some of the deals that he was working on. And a couple of things that he was talking about that I hadn't really been exposed to, although in hindsight, they make a lot of sense. Using banks to finance deals. I didn't even think, I truly didn't even think about that. I was like, I got to have this cash or I got to find an investor. But no, 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 no. When you get into like high quality properties, like banks finance this stuff. I've got freaking half dozen bank loans right now on properties and deals that I'm working on. But I listened to a few of their podcasts and they had just done their own live event and they were doing their their coaching, their masterclass, land subdividing masterclass. And I was at a point in my business where you know I had made plenty of money. I, I had funds available for education or further learning. And it just kind of clicked with me. I knew a couple guys who had been through their masterclass and had a lot of success. And so yeah, I joined. That's kind of what what kicked me off into subdividing was just joining their masterclass and getting in the room with those guys like every week, multiple hours a week, learning and evaluating deals, seeing other people's deals, et cetera. So let's dive into your first subdivide deal because that's obviously a, a big fun topic. What did it look like? How did you, what were the numbers? How did you find the right people? And what was the conversation like with the seller? What was the structure like all that? There's two, maybe I'll go through like, Two examples, because I'll talk through my first like full life cycle deal, which is a very, very simple land split and something I think anybody really can add to their portfolio and toolbox without really any education. And then the other is one that I'm in the middle of right now, which is a, a little bit of a larger land development engineering work, you know, this $2 million project. So the first one that I was a full cycle on, honestly, it's just, it's a deal that came through my pipeline just like any other deal comes from my pipeline. We either sent a text or we sent some mail or lots of ring this voicemail or something. We had an off-market deal, you know, seller reach out to us. My team presented the deal to me. It was a 10-acre property in South Georgia. 
had road frontage on two sides. Kind of small, not typically something I'd consider splitting, but there were other lots in the area that were sub 10 acres, some, some two to five acre lots. And so I knew there was potential for a split. And, you know, I just figured out how to do this stuff. So I was like, hey, yeah, like let's let's uh, negotiate a flip price. But we couldn't we couldn't come to an agreement, right? The price that I needed to get it at to be confident in a flip, they just wouldn't come down to. But because I could split it and force appreciation and bring the value of the price per acre up, we were able to come to an agreement. It was probably somewhere around 85% of like current market, which for a flip, that's not enough margin for me to feel comfortable taking it, especially with fees on the sales side, potential holding costs, et cetera. But it ended up being like an 80%-ish profit with a split. And so we, you know, we negotiated the deal, got under contract. While we were in our due diligence phase, just did some county research to figure out what was required to actually subdivide the parcel. Because some, you know, counties are different. Every county or parish, if you do deals in Louisiana, is different. Everybody does something different. You'd think everything would be the same, but man, you look into a county subdivision regulations, you might find pages upon pages of requirements, engineering requirements, inspections, environmental things, rainwater runoff, whatever. But in this particular county, there was, you know, it had like the standard plat recording subdivision requirements, but it had an exception that said, hey, if you aren't creating additional roads, like you're not building any roads, and each lot of the final subdivision is greater than three acres, then you don't have to do anything. You just do a plat and file it and you're good to go. And so it was about the simplest land split ever. I called a surveyor who lived in the county, who surveyed it, split into three, three and a quarter or three and a third acre lots for me. And then I listed them on the MLS and sold them all. I think my total hold time was like 60 days, like cash in to buy the deal to last lot sold cash in my bank and made like an 80, yeah, 80% profit on the deal. It was great. You know, Justin, we only interview people here who are doing very well. And I think I want to ask this to every guest from now on. And I sort of asked it to Clint this morning, but was there ever a season in your adult life that you felt like you weren't winning? Where you felt you kind of looked at yourself in the mirror and you're like, am I a loser? And just nobody wants to tell me. That's a good question. I felt that in this business, even having a lot of success, like, you know, you go through seasons. I think for me, this last year, just like the summer was pretty brutal. When you're in growth mode, and you guys can, I'm sure you guys can relate to this. When you're in growth mode, when you're growing your business, your capital requirements are ever increasing. Okay. And if it, it, you can find, and if you're finding a ton, if you have a ton of funders or you're finding a ton of like private money to come in and that's not a worry for you, that's fantastic. Like you can grow at whatever pace you need to. But if you do a lot of self-funding and you're reinvesting your profits as capital to help grow your business, like it can get, it can get hard sometimes. Because you have to manage this like razor's edge of both growth without running out of money. Because you're, I mean, your operational costs are, are growing. You know, I have a, a team of 10 people, like my costs for employees are growing. The number of deals we're doing is growing. I have to come more, bring more money to closing ever, every freaking month. And uh, there comes a time where if you don't have money to buy these deals, like you may end up losing out. And so I, I got down in the summer, we, we didn't sell. Things weren't moving very, very quickly. I think we were a little slow to, to drop prices and got down pretty low and like the capital accounts gave me a little, a little, little worry, but you know, we were able to get through it, find some extra money from folks. I gave away a little more equity than I typically like to, but Hey, you know what? That's the name of the game. I think the big key is just being somebody who is solution oriented and who doesn't quit. I mean, it's pretty crazy when I look back on the success that I'm having 
as an educator in land and even in our own operation at I buy land, a big piece of getting here was just not quitting. And when things are going tough and, you know, you were here, your back's against the wall and you're in that, you know, kind of scary spot, just not giving up and just be like, you know what, one way or the other, we're going to figure this out and we're just going to keep going in the keeping going. As I was saying, you will eventually figure out a solution, but it's just a matter of not quitting and being again, being creative in your problem solving. You can't just sit there and be like, Oh, it'll figure itself out. And then just twiddle your thumbs and go play video games. You got to adapt, right? You got to adapt. I think for every business, there's probably levers, right, that you can pull. And one of the things that I've always, I always think there is, okay, what are my levers? When I get into these future situations, potentially, like if things don't sell, like what is my next lever I need to pull in order to keep things rolling? And so I hit a couple of those in the summer, right? I, I laid off five people. We pivoted maybe from mail, which was obviously a little bit more expensive of a marketing channel to more of the lower cost text RBM type stuff. And that was just a lever I had to pull, right? I sold some notes. I have a lot of notes that I really enjoy. I love having notes. I mean, they're fantastic. It's like almost a passive investment you can make is, is owning a mortgage note. But yeah, generate a little bit of cash, right? Sell a couple of notes, sell some assets. You have these, these tools you can use. You just got to figure out when you need to pull the... the it's kind of like, like investing. I think you used to like trade. You used to day trade, right? When you're day trading, right? You set stop losses. You set points in your, in your trade where you know I'm out. Right, I got to pull this trigger to save capital, and I think your business is you know, a business like a land business is really similar in that sense. Where you got to know if things aren't going perfectly your way because you can't necessarily control the market, you've got to have a spot where you can you can kind of have an out, or you can pivot, or you can take this other opportunity to keep things rolling. But that tenacity, I think, is really important to to being successful in this business. You know, I love that, and I think it's easy to assume that everyone else has had a head start except for you. And the reason I want to ask that question more and more is what season did you feel like a loser is because I want to have the listeners see that it's not just up and straight to the right. There's like a lot of like ups and downs along the way and a lot of little nooks and crannies that other people can't see, right? So just six months ago, you felt like a loser. You had to lay off half your team right? And you had to maybe fire sell some properties. You're still going to net seven figures this year, which I think is still a big win. But emotionally, you felt really down, right? So I love it. So what's next, Justin? Where do you see yourself a year from now, 12 months from now? I I don't want to say five years because I know there's huge changes with you every, every quarter I talk to you. Honestly, I think a year from now, I mean, I'm going to continue to be, I'm going to, I'm going to doing the same, I think the same thing. I'm, I'm really enjoying this. I'm enjoying growing a team. I'm really like enjoying the development plays. And so I think I'm going to continue to just double down on subdivides uh, while growing the off market, you know, marketing funnel. I think like minor land splits and subdivides are just an exceptional tool to add to your belt. You know, they can be really challenging. There's a lot of opportunity. There's just so much opportunity out there. And I think We've seen, at least I've felt, and I'm sure you guys have too, this market get continued, you know, people continue to come into the market. People continue to send mail. I mean, just the number of letters I get on my like 50 something properties that I have in inventory right now every week is staggering sometimes. Like, holy moly. But they all look the same. And I'm like, man, what, what, these people aren't doing a whole lot to differentiate themselves from one another. And that gives me a little bit more confidence because I'm doing things that do like that look just way different and feel way different than those, than those letters. But I still enjoy it. I'm, 
I think there's a lot of value for both my family, like, our, you know, the lifestyle, being able to, to walk my kids to school every morning, pick them up, right? And my wife's out of town right now. She's on a business trip. And so I'm working from home. I dropped my kids off, got their lunch. Like we walked the mile to school. I walked home. I'm walking my dog, listening to podcasts, listening to Lex Friedman podcast on my way home. And then in 45 minutes, I'm going to walk back over there and go pick them up again and take, you know, having that freedom and know that deals are still getting done. Like my team is working. My acquisitions manager is, is negotiating. My sales team is working with our realtors. We, get, we have two offers on properties today and I'm not the one sitting there like doing all this stuff anymore. I want that to keep going. Yeah. How did you do it? So Jaron's abundance mindset, I think mostly comes from his, his faith. I think all three of us have similar faith. My abundance mindset, I think, came mostly from the, the books I've done. What about you, Justin? Did, did it just come naturally or did you have to learn that? Because it's exuding from you, the positivity. You know, that's a great question. I don't remember where I heard this, but this has stuck with me. I, God, I wish I could, I could cite the source. But a lot of people like to think about the economy or like the world in uh, like a pie, right? And there's only a certain... Yeah, zero sum, right? There's only another, there's, if you get more, then somebody else has to get less. But that is fundamentally untrue in every sense of the way. If you think about, if you think about just, and and this is, we're in the space, so this is like the perfect example. If you think about a land subdivide, right? You bought, you have a hundred acres, okay? Let's say you just split it into two. You just cut it in the middle. You now you have two fifty acres. Okay, there's the same amount of land. I'll give you that. Like mass balances are real. Like there's the same amount of land, but you fundamentally increase the value of the property because you've made a smaller lot that more people can afford, and therefore you've increased the price of that lot. Let's say you cut it again and you cut it again. Now you got 10, 10 lots, right? 10, 10 acres. The price per acre has gone up multiple times potentially, depending on the area you're in. That is creating real value in the world. Like that is real increase in like the the economy of that area that you've just done by splitting up the land. I mean, and nobody's losing in that scenario. Nobody's losing because you're prov- you're providing a service that the economy wanted. No, nobody is losing. I think that's the power of entrepreneurs is people drastically underestimate the power of value add. If you can figure out a way to take something that exists. And through some kind of business or some kind of strategy, make it valuable, there is an unlimited amount of value to go around. That's what's beautiful about business, to be honest. And that's why it's there is no limits. Even straight flips, you might say, well, you're not doing anything to it. You're just buying low, selling high. We're adding liquidity to an illiquid market, right? We're, we're connecting buyers and sellers. And as the middlemen, we're able to catch that spread. If you take your car to CarMax, it's worth fifteen grand. They're going to offer you seven and a half thousand for it, and you might do that deal because you want liquidity, right? You want fast cash. Same thing with bringing your car to a dealer and selling it to the dealer. It's exactly the same, right? If you sell it on, you sell it yourself, you're going to make more money on it. But most people want the convenience. I'm just curious to know too, like because we're starting to dip our toe in, in that whole world. Me and Drew. Are, are doing some deals in Oklahoma with uh, Land Maverick, and there's some other opportunities on the horizon. But I'm just curious, like, really, like, in terms of you know how you structured things with the seller. If you ever JV'd with a with a seller, if you've done any minor improvements, like put in a road, what that kind of stuff. What does what does that look like? So I'll talk through one deal I'm working on right now. 
This is the first like larger subdivide that I got under contract. It's in Northeast Alabama, 150 acre parcel. It was actually on the MLS. So like I didn't get this off market. There was a property that was listed on the MLS that looked great, had a ton of road frontage on basically three sides close to the Huntsville, Alabama market, which is a really hot market right now. And uh, yeah, just like called called up the listing agent and was like, hey, I'm interested in buying. Da, 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 da. We worked out, you know, what the seller was really motivated to get. He came down quite a bit uh, to get the deal, you know, done quickly. Uh, got it under contract, but this is a 13 lot split, average acreage, you know, 12, I guess. And there's a couple 20s, some some sevens, some some tens, somewhere in that range. But it was a bear. It is a bear. We're in the middle of it. So the whole process was this county. So it's Morgan County, Alabama has a very strict and very like regulated subdivision process. They implement it to stop, you know, ra- rogue developers from just cutting random lots into random shapes. And, you know, they want to protect the, the mission of that, of those regulations is to protect the integrity of the land and create desirable products or desirable pieces of land for people to live that keep the community flourishing, which I totally get. But in this case, I you know hired an engineer slash surveyor. We had to do, uh, sight line surveys for the roads to lay out driveway locations. Like when, when you have a road that you're traveling down, if there's any curvature to it or elevation changes to it, there's a safe stopping distance based on the speed of the road. And if you can't see a driveway around the corner and you're going 60 miles an hour, you know, there's a danger there. there there's a risk there that you could cause somebody to die from not being able to see and not stop in time. So that, that's why these things exist. But we had to do a full sight line distance engineering basically around the entire property, which drastically changed the way I drew my original lot cuts based on where we were allowed to, to do driveways. How did you find that out though, real quick? So was that by leaning on, on the engineer or was that by talking to the county rep? Yeah, hundred percent. Both, both. So let's take one step back. When you're doing a subdivide in a county, my advice would be first thing you should do is call the county engineer. Like when you've decided, Hey, I'm going to cut this property up call the county engineer's office because they want you to succeed. Like they want things to be done the right way and they will tell you everything you need to do. They'll send you the, the subdivision regulations. They'll, they'll, you know, send you forms. They'll iterate with you. You can even, a lot of times you can even email a county engineer, like what you're thinking on the cut. And they'll say, Hey, I don't think this is going to work for these reasons. They'll give you recommendations on engineers, firms to work with surveyors that they've liked to work with. I mean, it's just like this key relationship you need to form when you're doing, doing a split. So for the, in this case, I, it was all the engineer, right? I didn't know exactly what was going to need to be done here. So I hired a really solid firm in the area. I want to, I just want to emphasize that for the listeners right now, that's huge because kind of going back on our last episode with Clint Turner, just rolling up your sleeves and taking action and figuring it out in the subdivide world, improvement world, development world, you have professionals that you can lean on to figure out what you need to do. So you aren't blindsided. It's not like you have to have all the answers, to all the questions. You just you might not even know what questions to ask, but by reaching out to the right people, they're going to walk you through that process. And so I'm glad Justin highlighted the fact that you should call the engineer to every time you're looking at one of the deals. You should 100. percent I think there's a couple of key like team members when you're when you're doing development in an area, right? Especially if it's remote. Like I'm in Houston. This property is in Alabama. So like I'm not. I've been there. I met everybody in person. It was great. I went on a little trip, uh, brought my daughter with me, which was really just really special, but, but I'm not there. So you need to rely on people, your broker or realtor. I think that's a key relationship 
you know, a lot of people sell without realtors. That's great. But I think somebody on the ground that knows the market is a pretty key, key player on your team in a specific area you're working. A great surveyor, like somebody who will, who understands the county regulations and cre- create a survey or plat that meets the requirements in a timely manner for a good cost can help you a ton in an area that's a key, key player. The engine, like the county reps, the engineer, the commissioner, the road department, you know, the utility folks that can help advise like what it's going to cost to get water, get power, all. And then any contractors you might need, like dirt guys, road construction folks, all those are, can be key team members too on projects. Just kind of getting back into to the deal in Morgan County, the, the rainwater detention requirements, when you change land from a certain use to a residential use, there's a, basically a coefficient of friction or coefficient of rainwater runoff that changes fundamentally about the land. And maybe it doesn't exactly, but in their language, it does. And so you now have to meet the same or less rainwater runoff into the roadway than you did before. And now, now their, their assumption is more is going in. So you have to detain that water in certain ways to prevent it. And so my engineer, you know, we knew we were going to have to do some detention. I think in the capital raise, I budgeted maybe another 60 grand for that. But when we got our final calculations back, it was we're, we're having to build six detention ponds. We thought we were going to have to do one to three. And so I went through a bidding process and I had one bid come in at $261,000 and another bid come in at like 120 something thousand. And I had another one come in at 110. So obviously, you know, after a couple back and forth, we accepted the 110 one and that work actually just started. But I can't, I, I can't get final plat approval until all the detention work is done. And so we're still kind of in the middle of it. I also logged this property. So everybody's interested in like timbering and like how that whole thing works. We took about $100,000 worth of timber off of the property. How did you do that? Did you just partner with a timber company or what did that look like? Yeah. So I hired a, a forester, a registered forester to protect my interests. You know, you, you pay them a specific percentage of the pro- of your take, essentially. In this case, it was 10% of my take I paid for a forester. And in exchange, he managed the cut. He went through and marked like literally every tree to keep and all the trees to, to you know, lead or to take. And he worked directly with the logger to make sure we were keeping the, pro- the project done the way that I wanted it to be done. And then I hired basically an independent logger. And so these are guys that have relationships with mills. Maybe they work for mills or maybe they don't. We negotiated a buy the ton price based on the timber type, right? There's a ton of different types of timber. You have like uh, railroad ties is one, like fine pine, like, or fine law. I, I can't remember all the names. There's like a ton of different names, like pulpwood and whatever have you, tons of different grades of boards. And some of them get you really high dollar. Some of them get you medium dollar. And some of them are just like $5 a ton, like nothing, you know, pulpwood for paper essentially, or some other wood products. And so you negotiate your different prices with that guy. And he basically just, that's what he gives you. He'll timber it. He'll get it on his truck. He'll go to the, the sawmill, he'll weigh it. They'll tell him what different types there are based on the cuts he's made. And then they'll pay him, he'll pay you. To our point, if wherever you can create value, like literally cutting up trees, you, uh, the three of us on here would never in a million years do any of that work. But like you find the right person, yeah. there's value to be made everywhere. Yeah, 100%, 100%. But it actually, like, it helped the project a lot because I mean, that money that money like stretched our capital significantly. I was able to do a whole lot of cleanup on the property. I mean, it also increased costs, right? Because when you timber a property, typically it looks like absolute garbage when you're done. 
And so we had, you know, we, we went through mulching the property over all the stumps, tearing things out. So, you know, it wasn't like a profit play because I'm, this is a nice kind of higher dollar area. I'm not going to turn the land into some like wasteland with stumps everywhere. So we had them go through and mulch everything up afterwards. How much did that cost? I basically spent all the hundred grand of the timber on cleanup, driveways, everything. It was a net positive still, right? It was a net positive because it raised the value of the property. You guys all know, like if you were buying a property and the property is so thick with like pine, for example, you can't even get into it. You have no idea what the ground looks like, anything. Like there's just a discount you have to give. People will say, oh, well, I don't know what it looks like. Okay. But when you have a property where the only thing on it is like hundred foot tall pines and, and there's so much space in between all of them, you can literally see everything. There's a whole lot more value to that. And so we're creating just a better product by, by doing this. My grandpa's 40. I grew up going there every summer and half of the 40 was like super dense, nasty, thorny stuff. The other half had been logged and it was the most beautiful, open, looked like a forest from Lord of the Rings or something. And it really, really did make it much more pleasant to be in. Man, on this property, guys, holy moly. I don't know if I showed you, Drew, the pictures or something, but there's a sinkhole on it. That's this old cave. And it's probably the size of like, what would I compare this to? It's like this, like a fast food restaurant, like two of them, like put next to each other. Like imagine like a McDonald's. If you took two McDonald's and stuck them right next to each other, that's about the area of it. It's like pretty big. And it goes down about 15, 20 feet from the rest of the whatever level of the forest. And in it is this huge cave, like overhang that maybe goes back like 25 feet. And you can see like there are people who have been on the property sifting for arrowheads like they've been obviously illegally trespassing on my property sifting for arrowheads and different stuff but it's in, in the middle of the sinkhole is like a 350 foot tall multiple hundred year old tree and they, what they call they call those trees witness trees because they've been around so long they've like witnessed things it was pretty it was cool it was huge it was like six of me shoulder to shoulder like that's the diameter of this tree it's just massive if you ever visit it you should do like a selfie video and, you know, hey, my name is Justin. Here's my two-year-old. We're walking through the sinkhole. Check out this tree. I don't know if you've gone to it or not. I've been there. Yeah, I have some drone footage of and my pictures of my daughter playing in there. It's pretty fun. Yeah. I didn't film any selfies. I need to do stuff like that. I just did that for a property outside Tucson that I just bought. It's like a buy for 20, sell for we'll probably let's say 55. And I do these like selfie videos and stuff. And I would love to do one with trees on it because most of my stuff is desert. <laughs> yeah, come visit, man. All right, Justin. My real question is, what are the ways you can lose money on a subdivide? Because my fear is always, we do our due diligence, what we think is the checklist. And then halfway through, the county's like, oh, by the way, are you aware of ordinance one, two, three? You need uh, six different retention ponds all over it. Like what could crush a deal? And if you're truly buying slightly below market, maybe you just, worst case scenario, you exit at break even. I mean, what is your response to that? So when I'm underwriting subdivide deals, and this is something that the Casual Fridays guys teach, and, and it's honestly common sense, but you know, I'm pretty conservative. For me personally to do a deal without like bringing on any investors, I want to see a, like a minimum of like 80 to 100% profit on the deal to even to even think about it. And that's that's being conservative, underwriting the things I think it's going to cost because you never know. Like you really I mean like if you're really familiar with an area, you will know, you will learn. But if you're not familiar with an area, 
there's just a lot of things that can go can go wrong. Um, for example, if we if we weren't able to harvest the timber off that property, and I had to do all that cleanup at cost, which probably would have cost me another 50, 60 grand just to clean up and open the area up without selling the timber. And then I was also hit with that $110,000 detention. That probably would have been 70, 80 grand over the, my capital raise. And that would have been, I would have had to do a cash call to get through the, the property. You know, we probably still would make money, you know, but, but that would have significantly reduced the profit and it would have impacted my credibility, right. As an operator, uh, having to go to people and say, Hey guys, I wasn't prepared enough. I didn't know this was going to happen. But that being said, how do you prevent that? Because there was no way for us to see that without paying for the full scope of engineering drawings and getting to that point in the approval of the County. Like I had to get before they would even tell me how much attention and we could even calculate the detention. I had to get my plat preliminarily approved, but in order to get my plat preliminary approved, I had to do all of the speed studies, layout driveway locations. We had to figure out like the utility situation. I mean, it took six months just to get a preliminary plat approval before they would even tell me how much detention. So there was no way for me to, in this case, there was no way for me to keep it under contract this whole time to figure all this out. And even if I had, you know, I'd have been 50 grand into the property and just engineering and soft costs before I even got to that, that go, no go criteria. So sometimes you just, you know, you got to take a risk, but I think the best way to protect yourself is being conservative in your underwriting, right? If you underwrite at 100, 120% profit and then something goes wrong, oh man, bummer. Now I'm making 50% profit. Okay. Yeah. But you're not losing money. Do you mean like markup when you say profit, you just mean markup? You know, I mean like yield on cash. So that's for, for example, this project, I'll talk real numbers, right? I bought the property for $715,000. I took a, it was an 80, I took a bank loan, 80% loan to value. Uh, so I had to bring like a hundred and I don't know exactly the number, 150,000, let's say. Yeah, one forty thousand to to the closing table to buy the property, and then you know we had to we had to do engineering, we had to do driveways, we budgeted for detention, we budgeted for cleanup, and I ended up raising a total of three hundred and seventy thousand dollars for the project. So when I say return, I mean after we sell everything, pay back the bank, return capital to everybody. What's that profit percentage based on the capital that we have physically invested? That's what I mean by that conservative amount. So, so I would not have done the deal if I expected any less than like a four hundred and fifty thousand dollar profit after the bank was paid back and everybody's capital was returned. Or I guess I technically I really net profit on that. That would be ended up being net profit. I wish we had more time. I want to get into all of the people who pooled their money to get that deal done because you'd think that it'd be easy. Oh, just toss Justin hundred grand and you can get a cut, but there are hierarchies of, of money and the guys who are lower maintenance are, and they understand what you're doing. Obviously that's the most valuable color money to you, right? If somebody tossed you hundred grand and then they pestered you every week about it, that you'd fire them for for the next deal. And so that's, that's a whole other hour conversation we could have. But Jaron and I have had that. Dude, we could talk for hours. If you guys want to have me back on sometime, I'm happy to talk through any, any topic. Hey, are we going to see you this weekend at uh, some nurse thing in Vegas? No, I wish. Unfortunately, no. I actually am going to be, my, I have some buddies coming into town for uh, a short-term rental conference in Houston. I got a, I have a 10-bedroom short-term rental in North Carolina and my, my, my buddies, both of my buddies from Washington have short-term rentals and they were like, Hey, you want to go to this thing? So it's kind of a boondoggle. 
you know, my wife's like, okay, yeah, what are you going to this for? You're not going to be working. You're just going to be hanging out. I'm like, yeah, well, yeah. I'm going to learn something. I don't know. It'll be fun. No, that's what every conference is. Just, just to hang out. Because that's when deals are done. There's a ritual, right? Like it's a, it's really funny because you go to one of these conferences and there's like this, your drinking is involved, hanging out, jokes, being an idiot. And then somehow magic happens and you walk away with like the best relationships for yeah. doing deals. Yeah. I met Drew. I met Drew at a conference. Like I've met a ton of people at conferences that are just through masterminds. It's amazing. Like Ajay, man. Right. Ajay, what it, Ajay's an incredible dude. The best deals... They're all done after after 9 p.m. All the best deals are done after 9 p.m. And you got to stay up that late if you want to if you want to do the best deals. Well, awesome, guys. I guess we'll land it there. But Justin, I'd love to have you back on. We can even circle back and get it scheduled because I think there's a lot for us still to dive into. So love to have you back on. For linking stuff in the show notes, if people want to connect with you, where do you want me to send them to? Yeah, so I'm kind of active on Twitter. Like, you know, if I had to pick a social media thing to be like where I like to be is Twitter or X, I guess, if you will. So I'm at scouting the number four land at scouting for land on Twitter. And then I did set up a, just like a, a website, justinpache.com. It has like a booking link on my Calendly if people want to go there. And, you know, I'd ask people to be careful. <laughs> Please don't abuse this. Like I, I, you know, this is, but if you're genuinely interested in kind of talking about subdivides, doing bigger deals, consulting type stuff, you know, that's why I put it on there. I'm at a point, I think in my business where I've had a lot of success and I love teaching. Like I really do. I truly love teaching. I've been giving away a lot of like free consulting and it's been fun to see people, uh, to see people succeed and take that advice. You know, I'd like to maybe not give away quite as much for free and, and, and maybe provide value to people where they're where they're truly invested in it. But if you're gonna reach out to Justin, guys, bring him a deal. At least have a lead. You can have a lead man, or but but I'm happy to yeah. I mean I can only accept so many of them. I think I need a Drew and I have been talking, I need to get an executive assistant to have a little bit more control over my calendar and availability. That's somebody I'm hiring ASAP. But yeah, you can go there. Justinbachet.com, Twitter, Scouting for Land, the number four. Justin. We're so happy to have you. Love to have you again and look forward to meeting you again in person at a future conference. Absolutely. 